Well, the last few weeks we've looked at Romans 8, 28 to 30, some of the grandest promises of Scripture grounded in some of the grandest truths of Scripture. And Paul's purpose here at the end of chapter 8 is to help us be founded in the security of God's unchangeable purpose. And next week we'll see in particular rooted in his unshakable love. Really 8, 31 to the end of the chapter is a unit with five questions you can build your life upon. There are these. Number one, who can be against us? Number two, how will God not give us all things? Number three, who will bring any charge against us? Number four, who can condemn us? And number five, who can separate us from the love of God? We're just going to focus on the first three this morning, last two next week. So this morning we're going to focus on 31 to 33. Romans 8, 31 to 33. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 888. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Main theme of these verses is that God is for us, so we have nothing to worry about. But I want us to see these three questions Number one, they really turn them into statements. Number one, God is for us, so no one can be against us. Number two, because God gave his son, he will give us all things. And number three, God is the one who justifies, so no one can accuse. And before we jump into that first question, notice in verse 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? He asks the question, what then shall we say? He actually does that a few times in the book of Romans. What then shall we say? To these things. Well, what are these things? I think it's actually the whole letter so far, everything we've seen in Romans. He started out in Romans 1. What have we seen about these things? 1 7, that we are those who are loved by God. We are those who are called to belong to Jesus, even though our past was hostile to God. Remember those chapters 1 and 2 and 3? We can't save ourselves because of our sin, we can't gain a right standing. But God has given us a right standing through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified, declared in the right by his grace as a gift, Romans 3, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 325, God put his son forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. That word propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. The wrath of God was against us because of our sin. But in Jesus, it's no longer against us. Chapter 4, even though we're ungodly, we're justified, we're blessed, just like David and Abraham, having our sins forgiven, we're heirs of the promise to Abraham. And then chapter 5, I can't help but just read it because so much of it overlaps with chapter 8, 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. What, are, what shall we say to these things? We have peace. Though before there was hostility, verse 2, through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love 
has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What then shall we say to these things? And then we move to chapter 6, verse 14. We learn that sin will no longer have dominion over us. We've been freed from the power of sin because we've been united to Jesus and we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. Verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It's what we've earned, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7, we learn that we're freed from the law that we might belong to another. Chapter 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we've been given the Spirit, verse 15, by whom we cry now to our Father, Abba, Father. We are now adopted as sons. And then we saw a few weeks ago these grand promises that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good, his conformity to Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? It's 31 is really a summary of what we've seen in Romans. Look at it again. If God is for us, who can be against us. Now, if he had just said, who can be against us? We'd say all sorts of things, right? All sorts of people can be against us. The world is against us. The flesh is against us. The devil is against us. All the stuff we'll see next week in verse 35 is against us. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Who can be against us? And this is the Apostle Paul writing this. Remember what happened to him? He had a few people against him, didn't he? Let me just read one passage of many. You don't have to turn there. But let me just read a few from 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 23, who can be against us? Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He's kind of having some false boasting here because others are boasting. And he's going to boast about his credentials here. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He's not talking about Colorado kind of stoned. Talking about rocks. Three times shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall, and I'm not 
I am, I am not indignant. Who can be against us? All kinds of stuff can be against us. As John Stott says, we have formidable foes arrayed against us. There is much against us. But that's not what he asked, is it? He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? We will be opposed. There will be people against us in all sorts of ways, by all sorts of things and sorts of people. But if God is for us, at the end of the day, no one can be against us. Because God is greater. God is stronger. And we're on his team. And he is for us. Our foes will not have the last word. As we'll see, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As John Boyce said, if Christ stand with us, who can withstand us? We have the creator of the world on our side. God is for us, so none can be against us. Here's the way J.I. Packer puts it. He says, the simple statement, God is for us, is in truth one of the richest and weightiest utterances the Bible contains. Especially if we've been reading Romans and keep Romans 1, 2, and 3 in our minds. Richest and weightiest utterances the Bible contains. God, the holy creator, is for us. We've seen it several times. Look at verse 26. There we learn that the Spirit intercedes for us. There in verse 27, he intercedes for the saints. Verse 28, God works good for those, for us. Romans 8.31, if God is for us. Romans 8.32, God gave up the Son for us. He will graciously give us all things. Verse 37, him who loved us. God is for us. It's the theme of the Bible. Just think about the story. God's plan is to redeem a fallen people. He doesn't leave us in our sin when he could have. He would have been completely just. Just think about the garden. God creates, remember, God in, in relationship with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit has existed for all eternity. He didn't have to create. He was perfectly content and perfectly self-sufficient without us. He doesn't need us, but out of delight, he creates us. Well, what happens? Remember what? happens there in the garden. Basically, the enemy comes in and says, God is not for you. God is against you. Did God really say? You can't trust him. You can't trust his word. He doesn't want your best. God is not for you. God is against you. And they believe the lie and God could have been done. God could have said, you know what? All right, let's go back to where it was. No sin. But he doesn't. He makes a promise. He makes a promise that there will be this seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and he has a plan to redeem us and so Adam and Eve and they populate the earth does it get any better no it stays terrible right and then we have Noah and God floods the world in judgment catastrophic judgments worldwide flood could have been done would have been totally just and right to be done instead he preserves a family Noah and his family he gives us a fresh start again out of grace and out of mercy he's for us and he pulls out this random pagan named Abram and makes promises to him and says, through you and your family, Abraham, I'm going to be for us, for my people. And Abraham's family could have died out, but he raised up a Joseph. God is for us. 
Then when Pharaoh tries to snuff out the children of Israel, God preserves his people and he raises up a leader, right? Remember Moses' mama, Exodus 1, 2, and 3? Put him in a basket when Israel, Pharaoh's trying to snuff out all the children. Put him in a basket, sends him down. He's picked up by Pharaoh's own daughter who asks Moses' mom to nurse him for her. God uses the adopted grandson of Pharaoh to take down Pharaoh and free his people. God is for us. Remember the little shepherd boy against the nine-foot Philistine giants. God uses him to take him down with a slingshot. God is for us. So you got to love Elijah. I know you kids learned about Elijah this morning. Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, right? And so they make their, their altar and they get it all ready and they're at Mount Carmel and they pray and they dance and they cut themselves asking God to light the thing up. Crickets. Then it's Yahweh's turn. Elijah's kind of mocking him. Where's your God? Where's he at? Is he busy? Is he taking a nap? Is he relieving himself? Then it's Yahweh's turn and he takes the altar and he douses it with water and he douses it again and he prays and the one true Lord consumes the altar. God is for us. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tossed in the fiery furnace for refusing to worship the false gods. They know their God is able to deliver them. They're tossed in, and all of a sudden they see four dudes. They tossed in three of them, and they see four dudes taking a walk. They're in there walking with Jesus. Daniel 4.27, the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Or Daniel, persisting to pray to the one true God, thrown in the den of lions. An angel shuts the mouth of the lion. Daniel 6.23, no kind of harm was found on him. God is for his people. And then when they even continue to rebel, so later on they continue to rebel and God doesn't let them go. He could have let them go. He would have been right and just, but instead he makes promises. You know what? I'm not going to let you go in your rebellion through the prophets. I'm going to forgive your sin. No more sacrificial system. I'm going to remake you from the inside out. And we've just seen how God is for us in the book of Romans. He's for us so none can be against us. One of my favorite church fathers is John Chrysostom. Chrysostom means golden mouth. He was a 4th century bishop, and one time he got in trouble with the empress. Rome was, Rome was pressing in on him at this point, and she, she really didn't like him because he would tell the truth, and she threatened to banish him. Here was his reply. He said, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. She threatens him with death, and he says, no, you can't kill me. My life is hid with Christ and God. She threatens to take away everything he owns and he says Man, you cannot do that my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there she threatens to drive him away from all of his relationships family and friends and he says no you cannot for I have a friend in heaven whom you cannot separate me I defy you for there is nothing you can do to harm me if God is for us none can be against us friends what is there to fear as the old hymn says, now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? No. All our trust is in him. All our trust is in his blood, his great love. God is for us. We have nothing to fear. 
Why this fear and unbelief? Listen to the prophet Isaiah chapter 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hands. Fear not. He's for you. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Isaiah 54, 17. I like the King James, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord God is for us. Do you believe that this morning? But we got to ask, who is the us? Who is the us? Like we've seen earlier in chapter eight, the glories of this chapter are not for everyone. They are for Christians. Non-Christians don't have this promise. For non-Christians, there will be many people and things against them that will ultimately prevail. God, if, you're, if you don't know the Lord here today, God is not for you like he's for those who've trusted Jesus Christ, like he is for his children. So this promise is not for you, and I've actually got worse news. What we've seen in Romans, not only is God not for you, God is against you because of your sin. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That was all of us. That was the Christians before we became Christians. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so God is not for you, but he can be for you. Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. You can trust him right now where you are. If you don't know the Lord, you can say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe that I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Jesus, will you save me? If you have questions about becoming a Christian, there's nothing more we would rather talk about with you than that. Trust in Christ and God will be 100% for you. Man, how secure are we, Christians? God himself would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. And that ain't going to happen. Christian, do you believe that? If so, why do you worry? Why do we worry? If we believe this, why are we so anxious? Worry and anxiety are a denial of Romans 8. We just need to own that. When we are worrying and anxious about things, we just need to acknowledge, I'm not believing that the God of Romans 8 exists and is for me. And so we need to fight worry with these truths. Must convince ourselves that when we worry, our thinking has shifted. When we worry, we are replacing the God of Romans 8 with some other lesser false functional deity. We're not worshiping God anymore at that point, right? As one has said, worry is the worship song we sing to what we most want. And if it involves worry, it's not the God of Romans 8. And so we preach to ourselves. We remind ourselves of these truths. Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, 
whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Notice how he preaches to himself. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? If God is for us, none can be against us. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God is for us so none can be against us. Second declaration here in this section is that because God has given us his son, he will give us all things. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we know? How can we know that God is for us? Well, something has happened in space-time history that we can look to and know God is for us. Look no further than a hill called Calvary. You ever doubt God is for you? Look at the cross. And remember the context here. Remember the church at Rome was struggling. They were a small, marginalized people. Probably lots of worry and lots of anxiety. They were on the verge of persecution. They were already being verbally persecuted and marginalized, verbally abused, probably lost family, lost jobs. The heat was turning up. They were on the verge of Nero's persecution. And Paul here assures them that they're going to be just fine. It's going to be all right. Notice four truths. As I was looking at this verse, I realized verse 32 is a sermon of its own. Notice four truths from verse 32. Number one, the father's love. The father's love, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up. The father has initiated our salvation. This word gave him up is actually used two times in the Greek Old Testament in Isaiah 53. I hope you know what Isaiah 53 is about. It's about that suffering servant, that servant who dies in our place. Verse 12 says he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the father shows his love by sending the suffering servant who dies in our place. The father gave him up. The cross was due to the love of the father. We all know God so loved the world. He gave his only son. We saw in Romans 3.25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation. The father gave up the son out of love. As Octavius Winslow put it, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy, but the father for love. So notice the father's love. Notice the son's worth. The father did not spare his own son, his one and only son, the beloved son, the son of his love. How valuable is the son and the father gave him up. He did not spare his son, his only son. I think there's an allusion here to Genesis chapter 22. Do you remember that story? God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and he's taking him up to be sacrificed and before he does, the angel of the Lord says, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to, to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son. Genesis twenty two twelve, And God provides a ram as a substitute 
for Abraham's only son, Isaac, which leads us to the third truth of this first, substitutionary atonements. Here at Southside, we wholeheartedly believe in substitutionary atonements. The Father gave up the Son for us as our substitute to make atonement for our sins. Just like the ram instead of Isaac, in the place of Isaac for us. Two glorious words. Galatians 1.4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, taking our place. 1 Corinthians 15.3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins. He's our substitute. And the fourth thing we see in verse 32 is the cosmic provision here. Paul is arguing from a lesser to a greater argument here. He's saying, hey, look, if he gave his only son, of course he will give you all things. Look what he's done. And not only will he give them to you, he'll give them to you freely, graciously give us all things. The gospel is cosmic in scope. We've seen that in chapter 8. Verses 18 to 23, the fact that ultimately God's not just going to redeem us, not going to just redeem our souls, not just redeem our bodies. He's going to redeem the whole world. The whole world is in bondage, and he's going to set the creation free. Romans 4, 13, we are heirs of the world. Not only will he give us salvation, he'll give us all things because he gave his son. The giving of the son is the guarantee of all his future blessings. And in this life, he'll give us everything we need to get there. All things required on the path to the celestial city will be provided. It's going to be all right and we're going to make it. Again, Packer. The meaning of he will give us all things can be put thus. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we need than that? Ray Orland says, God takes a bold, whatever it takes attitude toward you and me. He stands ready to give us whatever we need to be prepared for heaven. Christian, take heart, be encouraged. No good thing will be withheld from you. He gave his son. He will give you all you need. The amount of his generosity is measured by the value of the gift. He spared nothing. If he didn't spare his one and only son, he will spare nothing from you. Because God gave up his son, he will give us all things. Again, don't worry. You can trust him. Just consider what he's done for you. Look at the cross. Ann Voskamp has a book called 1,000 Gifts, and she shares how she had struggled with losing her sister as a toddler. And she struggled for years, and in the end, she realized that it boiled down to whether or not she trusted God. Another way to say that is whether or not she believed in the God of Romans 8. Here's how she puts it. God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need if trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust? With the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on his cracked lips. How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best 
and right. He's already given us the incomprehensible. Because he gave up his son, he will give us all things. And the third declaration is that God justifies so no one can accuse. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, the elect here, they're just another way of referring to the people of God or those whom God has chosen. Scripture often speaks of us this way. Let me read just a few verses. Colossians 3.12 says that we ought to put on then as the elect of God, compassion and kindness and other virtues. Jesus used it three times in Matthew 24. Just to give one example, he says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Luke 18, Jesus says God will give justice to his, his elect. Romans, if you want to turn the page, look at Romans eleven seven. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says he endures everything in ministry, persecution, for the sake of the elect. First Peter's written to the elect exiles chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Second John's written to the elect. You get the idea. Who can bring a charge against God's people? And again, if we just had that first question, who can bring a charge against us? That's all it said. And we can, who can be against? We could answer in all kinds of ways, right? Who can bring a charge? If that's all we had, well, we have a cacophony of condemners, starting with our own conscience. Our own conscience accuses us. Satan accuses us. His name is the accuser, after all. He accuses night and day. And listen, friends, half the time, he's right. He knows our sin. He knows we fall short. He knows our ongoing battle, our anger and our lust and our envy and our bitterness. We are guilty. We do not measure up. We do fall short. What do you mean who can bring a charge? I feel charged all the time. I feel accused all the time. I've shared before my favorite Shane and Shane song is Embracing Accusation. Listen to these lyrics here. Just notice the title, Embracing Accusation. The father of lies coming to steal, kill, and destroy all my hopes of being good enough. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. That's Galatians 3.10. It's the devil quoting scripture in this song. He's right. Hallelujah. He's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed, that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation, embracing accusation. Could the father of lies be telling the truth of God tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah. He's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the first verse so conveniently over me, he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. He's forgotten the rest of the song. Who shall bring a charge against God's people? Satan will. 
But he's forgotten the refrain, it is God who justifies. God knows about our sin. He knows our frame. He saves us with eyes wide open. No one can produce new evidence of your sin that will make God change his mind about you. Do you remember Romans 4? Flip back there a couple pages. Romans 4, 4. God does not justify the godly. To use Jesus' language, he doesn't come for the healthy. He only comes for the sick. Look at Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God doesn't come to justify godly people. You know why? There are none. He comes to justify the ungodly. That's the message of the Bible. I was sharing the gospel last week with a guy, and it's so hard in Abilene, isn't it? Uh, and this guy said, you know what? Yeah, I don't go to church, but I believe all that. I believe all, you know, I believe all the stuff still. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what's all the stuff? Oh, you know, you know, be good, do good, good will come to you. So, hold up. That's not the stuff we believe in my church, friend. That's not what the Bible teaches. We see, teach Romans 3.10, none are good. No, not one. That's why Jesus had to come, because we don't measure up. We need the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't justify the godly. He doesn't clean up the healthy. We are not righteous, but through faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we are counted righteous by grace through faith. So no one can condemn you. If you've trusted in Jesus, no one can make God stop loving you. You are his. And friends, if you struggle to believe that, you know what? Those struggles don't even keep him from loving you eternally. The weakest faith still latches on to the strongest savior. It is God who justifies. It is God's affirmation and approval that matters. He is the one who declares in the right. It's not your conscience. Don't look inward. Look outward. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. By this, we shall know we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. For he knows everything. Your heart doesn't justify you. Your feelings don't justify you. Other people do not justify you. Don't look horizontally for affirmation, especially young people. Don't waste your time and energy looking this way for approval and affirmation. It's as fickle as a flickering flame. You don't even look to the church for your justification and affirmation. And you don't justify yourself. You don't gain God's favor by your track record or your performance. It's not the accuser who justifies what does this verse say? It is God who justifies. The Spirit, through Paul here, brings up two doctrines that should drive assurance. One is election, one is justification. We've seen both of them worked out already. Saw election last week, God's chosen us. So who can bring a credible charge against us? If God chose us, who can be against us? Who can accuse us? I tried to show last week that he chooses us not on the basis of anything in here. God's love truly is unconditional. 
And so because he didn't choose you on a basis of anything in you, he won't let you go on the basis of anything in you. It's meant to drive assurance. We're his. From eternity past to eternity future, we are the Lord's. So who can accuse us? And then he says, who can bring a charge? Because it's God who justifies. He, uh, he justifies the ungodly by grace through faith. Sola fide, faith not work. So do you trust Jesus this morning? Then you're justified. You're declared in the rights. It's been the whole message of Romans. And so the darts of the evil one and the darts of others, they can just bounce off of you like a used Nerf gun. And this ought to make us sing. This is why the church sings, Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. He has forgiven our sins. He has removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look. And see him there who made an end of all my sin. When Satan tempts us, we don't look inward. That's a way to despair, at least my shoes. We look upward. Again, Machine, for every one look in here, we ought to take ten looks at him. Who made an end of all my sin. Though Satan should buffet, that's to strike out at us, to try to take us down. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Christ has regarded us. He's for us. He's given us his son. He's justified us. He's chosen us. Let Satan buffet. Let trials come. I'm going to remain assured because of the cross. My favorite Luther quote, I've got to say it at least five times a year. When the devil throws our sin up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak like this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Do you fight Satan in that way? When the world accuses you and tempts you and condemns you, when your own heart does that, when the enemy does, do you preach this gospel? If not, you should. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I think Paul was thinking about Isaiah 50 as he's writing this chapter. Isaiah 50 verse 7 says this, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Friends, because God has foreknown us, predestined us, called us, justified us, will one day glorify. Oh, be assured, Christian. Be confident, not in yourself. Be confident in him. God is for us, so none can be against us. 
Because God gave up his son for us, he will surely give us all things. And no accusation will be ultimately effective because it is God who justifies.